Hey guys, welcome to the Coach Mike Podcast. As you know, last week, Harvey Weinstein was convicted in the New York City court on one count of third degree rape and one count of a criminal sexual act. He faces five to 29 years in prison. Weinstein's abuse was exposed in a New York Times article in 2017. The cornerstone of that article was a leaked memo written by a 28-year-old Weinstein Company employee. She is my guest today, Lauren O'Connor. Thank you so much and welcome to the show, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. How are you feeling? Um, a little nervous. A little nervous, a little shy. I think all, all the normal things, maybe. Um, but good. It's a good week. Yeah. So your your courage of writing that memo um, was kind of the first exposure to what had been going on. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that memo? Yeah. Um, you know, so I'd been an employee for two years at the point when I filed it. And, um, you know, in so many ways, it was a dream job. I started there at 26, left at 28. And you know, Harvey was really of two worlds in the sense that he was, you know, tremendously verbally abusive, but also by equal and opposite measure, a tremendous mentor. And um, I had both the privilege and the pain of working very closely with him. And, uh, you know, it was um, over time, I started to pick up on things that were happening that weren't right on certain patterns. Um, and there was one night where a woman, you know, a young woman came to my hotel room in the middle of the night and started crying and, you know, was, was choking on her own words and told me about what we've now come to know as, you know, a massage incident. Um, and in moments like that, you you can't unsee something, you can't unknow something. And so the question then became, what what can I do about it? You know, I'm I'm 28, I'm just starting out, um, but I I couldn't in good conscience continue working and not try to do something. And how you'd been with the company for two years, yeah. And how was it the first time you met Harvey? Like, was this a dream job? Oh, beyond, beyond. I mean, you know, this is the, this is a man who, before he was Harvey the monster, you know, he was the man thanked more than God at the Oscars. Um, he, the films he made informed the reason why I wanted to work with story, the reason I believed in story. Um, you know, his, so movie, his movies were magic. You were just. Yeah. So I was working as a, I was working as what's called a literary scout. So sourcing a uh, book material out of the publishing marketplace um, for, you know, to be made into movies and TV shows, which sounds very fancy. I was very junior in my career. Um, and a friend of mine called me and said, Harvey's looking for someone who knows how to do what you do. I think you'd be a good fit for the company. Um, I met him for breakfast. I was hired in the room and kind of was, was stunned, like couldn't believe it. You know, everything was beginning. You know, you're 26 years old. You're living in a 300 you know square foot apartment in New York with a roommate. And you, you know, end up at a breakfast table across from the man that produced the movies that, you know, changed 
the way you saw the world. I was so excited to be there. And, you know, I, I knew it was going to be a rigorous environment. You know, I knew that it, there would be a lot of travel, a lot of late night phone calls, um, very intense work, but I was really ready for the challenge. I was excited for it. So excited. And when was the first moment you were working for him where you went, like where he spoke to someone a certain way or where you felt like, uh-oh, what is this? Um, I mean, he was a yeller, but I think there, for me at least, there was a perception that the ability to withstand that heat was a necessity of being able to function in my career. Um, and so, so, you know, that, that those kind of first layers of, of abusive behavior became really quickly normalized. Like what do you remember? Anything that like. He talked to employees or people there and you're like, oh, what is this? Yeah. I mean, here was what was here's what was hard and confusing about the verbal abuse is that when a man that talented tells you that you're smart and talented, mm. you believe it. But you also know that, you know, whether you make a mistake or he was just in a mood that compliment could be turned against you. You're too smart. You're too talented. I just, I imagine that, you know, um, uh, there would be moments where you're, uh, you see how he's speaking to another person and your own values, you may sit there and go, well, this comes with the territory. But then at the same time, like, what is this? Yeah, it's... Um this is this is going to be a, a little bit of a nerdy reference, but there's this David Foster Wallace Kenyan graduation speech, and and in it, the anecdote I love, right, is um, an old fish swims by two two young fish, and and he says to them, "How's the water today, boys?" And the young fish look at him and say, "What's water?" And that's what working in that environment was like. It was abusive without question. I mean, you worked around the clock, but you know, you were young in your career. You didn't have a lot of points of comparison. So even if it bumped for you on a fundamental like human level, you didn't, you didn't, you weren't fully aware. And layer on top of that, the fact that you yourself are also being abused. And, and you're thinking almost like this is just the way it is. Yeah. If you want to be. If you want to succeed, if you want to pay your rent, like you have to be able to work in this kind of environment. And if you, it's for this dream to be possible. And do you think it was building for you, like the feelings that led up to the memo where like you were kind of like enough as enough? Like Absolutely. I mean, I think the thing with about, you know, high stress environments is that it it demands such a high level of compartmentalization. So if you're working, you know, say I was working a 17-hour workday, 12-hour workday, and something for 10 minutes of that day seems off in the way he maybe treated a woman, you know, um, when it comes to the landscape of sexual harassment and assault, it's 10 minutes of 12 hours. And that moment passes you so quickly mm. and you're trained to focus on getting the job done. So for me, you know, I think on just a kind of core level, you'd pick up on these things, but it took a while to actually 
see them and for that compartmentalization to like, um, you know, to break down, to break down and see a pattern. Mm. And it did build, it did build. Um, like, it's funny, you know, I was talking to a friend recently and, uh, for reasons I can't even explain. I rewatched the Titanic about two months ago and in it, right. We're watching the, the, the bottom of the ship flood. And all of a sudden the water, you know, rises all the way to the ceiling and passes over the barrier. You know, the barriers that were supposed to contain the water can't anymore. And that's what it was like. So for you, it was building, building, yeah. building. It was like the yelling. It's, it just started filling up more and more. And then there's a moment that happened where you just couldn't tolerate it. You just, yeah. I mean, you know, someone comes crying to your room in the middle of the night. Literally, like knocking on knocking your- on my door, pounding on my door, and I open it, and I'm not kidding when I say she was she was choking on her own tears. And wow. and um, did you know her? Yeah, per- very peripherally. Um, And it was tricky, you know, because I think with assault, with consent, with violation, feeling like somebody is safe to turn to and will respect your wishes is important, Mm. you know, and I remember saying to her, um, you know, if you ever decide to do something about this, right, if you ever want to go to HR, like I'll go, I can, I'll go with you. I'll, you know, I'll let them know that this happened. Um, No career is worth it to me. But I also promised that I wouldn't tell anyone. You know, she was confiding in me. She had just been violated. And that was really, that's important. That's important, you know. Um, And so when I did eventually write the memo, it was really difficult because I felt an obligation to her. To, to her, yeah, to keep her name private, to respect her um, consent, frankly, as to whether or not she wanted that story and told or told Why do you think she her. came to you? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think, um, you know, we had developed a rapport. We had developed a rapport. And uh, I think she was really brave to come to me. I think she was mm-hmm. really brave. And did so you guys were sitting in your hotel room talking about what happened. This happened in the door, literally in the door frame. Wow. Yeah. And then it's like goes back to the room, end of the night. And next it's, morning started at 6 a.m. and we're going, going, going. And you're back and, with Harvey and you're just like and work's back on. You know, you're back to work. At that and, moment in the doorway, is that when it hit kind of the breaking point for you? Yeah, like when I talk about kind of the the t- Titanic flooding, that's that's the moment that pushed the water over the wall for me. And that like that moment it really became not a if you do something, it was a how, mm. right? Because this Oof. woman, this young woman who'd just been violated come to me, ask me not to tell. Um, needing that sense of safety and confidence and support, but also as, you know, someone who, you know, years prior at 23 had been assaulted myself and didn't feel that I could speak for myself. Mm. Um, I wouldn't, I also like would not have been able to look in the mirror the next day if I didn't try to do something. So you had been through a sexual assault Mm -hmm. prior. Yeah. And that 
was almost like your way of going, oh no, I, I didn't stand up in that moment perhaps, but now I'm going to help this girl stand up for something or. I think standing up for ourselves in the midst of a sexual assault can be a tricky way to look at things um, because an assault doesn't happen because you didn't stand up for yourself. An assault happens regardless of that. That's what makes it violating. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think what it was was this. Like, I looked on her face. I know what that feels like. I've been there. I've been there. And if this was happening and I was aware of it um, and I had, an, frankly, an opportunity to try and do something that, that could help that from not happening to somebody else. Like, I know what it's like. Hmm. I know what it's like. And if there is a way in which I can um, lessen the risk that someone's able to do that to somebody else, I had like I had to. It was just an imperative. When you went through it yourself, um, what was your way of handling it? Yeah, I mean, you know, when when the next morning, um, I told, you know, my roommate at the time that something I didn't use the word rape, um, but I said that something really twisted had happened. And um when you when with your sexual assault. Referencing the night Reference before. It. Okay. Yeah. So referencing my own assault, you know, I said I, the next morning I told her something really twisted had happened, and the the response was you'll never be able to tell your husband, I'm not married, but you'll never be able to tell your husband about that. And I don't think she's an unsupportive person or friend, but I think we're really, we're socialized to isolate violation. Like we're socialized to put it in a box, mm. tuck it away. It's shameful. Don't tell anyone, you know? And, and I remember a couple months later, I still couldn't quite make sense of what happened. It's not, you know, you don't quite wake up the next morning and go like, oh my gosh, that's what happened to me. It's what just happened. It's a question, you know, because mm. you don't you don't want to believe that your body and, and your spirit had to deal with that. And, um, you know, but I remember a couple months later going to a therapist, my first time going to therapy ever. First time. Ever. Ever. Based upon this. I just knew that I was not feeling okay. Mm. Like I just knew I did not feel okay. And mm. I, I um, needed to sort out what happened that night. Not because I didn't remember, but because I was scared of the word rape. Mm. I was scared of that word. And, um, you know, and I went to therapist and I still remember what I said. I said, I'm hesitant to use the word rape. It's a really big word, but here's what happened, you know, a couple months ago. And that therapist said to me, well, he sounds piggish, but what we should really talk about is how you can prevent that from happening to, your, to yourself in the future. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it took me a long time to come back from that. Did you go back to the therapist? Yeah, I continued. I went three or four times and then I just stopped going. And that and that shut me down for the better part of like a what year, a year and a half. terrible introduction to therapy. Oh, yeah. I have a great therapist now. 
amazing. But yes, it was. And that, that idea, that idea of don't speak or you can prevent or what's your someone else's behavior. Yeah. You can prevent what someone else chooses to do. Like, I mean, that really, that, that kind of, uh, Psychology has taken a long time to unwind. Wow. Yeah. And, and and so so being that you had had that experience and going to therapy and then uh, that conversation that happened in the doorway and then you making a decision how long after that to write to HR or what was your process? Yeah, it took a while. It took a while. Um, it took a while because I was really weighing the fact that I gave someone my, my word. Um, and I did not want to, you know, expose them or violate their trust. But I also had, you know, what felt like a responsibility, you know? And so I thought really hard about the phrasing and, and ultimately the memo wasn't about that singular experience. It was about many forms of, you know, harassment and, and abuse and, um, you know, gender discrimination, et cetera. And, um, you know, but it, it's, I knew I had to do something. What I knew I had was literally a keyboard, a brain that likes to use words. Like I love to write and, um, you know, and that there was a way to put it together where I did not have to reveal her identity. Mm. Um, and to this day, you know, that, that instance was, you know, dubbed, you know, fit enough to be published in the New York times, but no one's been able to confirm who she is. And I, you know, I say all that to say that I, I think it's really hard sometimes to know what the quote unquote right thing to -hmm. do is. It's not, you know, I felt very clear that I had to do something, but how you do it, what you do, um, isn't clear cut. It's not simple. It's not all systems go. You don't start by taking the most extreme action. You actually start in in small ways, right? You uh, maybe try to make sure that it, that you're always with another colleague if you're in a situation, right? You, you start out by figuring out how you can protect yourself. I mean, for me on... Uh, Inst- I guess instinctual level, like, and I didn't realize I was doing it at the time until a friend said something, but I, you know, I stopped wearing makeup, stopped doing my hair, started wearing baggy, you know, turtlenecks. I have like, truly I have one that I finally got rid of, but hmm. you know, I probably wore it twice a week. And, um, and I don't say that to say the first thing you need to do is stop being in a, me- you know, a meeting alone or stop, you know, putting on clothes that make you feel nice. But that was my first step. And it wasn't until someone pointed out to me that I was, you know, frankly, like no longer really physically taking care of my appearance that I realized what, that I was scared, that I was scared. And, um, you know, jumping back to that balance of power line, that notion of power made it scarier. I mean, this is a man who was probably still is immensely wealthy, world famous. You know, I was a kid, like 28 years old, I was a kid. Hmm. And there, I had no platform. I had no power. Um, what I had was a pen. And I think, you know, 
I think when we're in these situations, the first thing you do, and you know, the first thing I did was write an email to my mom. And when I was coming to terms with what might or might not be happening and what I was perceiving, and I think the first thing you do is you find someone you trust, find someone you feel safe with, and you talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true, you know, whether you are standing up to injustice of any kind or when you're processing your own trauma, when you're coming to terms with it, um, you know, there's no... There's no clear-cut path to healing. I don't know the pre prescriptive way to heal, but I know how I've I've found a way to heal. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think while writing and filing the memo was in and of itself traumatizing, and certainly the press was traumatizing, there was also a reclamation in that. You know, in in writing about abuses and, and bearing testimony, we can also find our own voice. And I didn't know it at the time, but I think it, I was really changing the state of my own assault. You know, my assault stopped at some point changed from being this moment that separated me from my body and my body from myself and instead turned it into an act of service. Mm. You know, and I think that's important. I think I think you find the acts of service. You do not have to throw a grenade on your career. Um, but, but you find someone you feel safe with, you talk to them and you write things down above all else. You write things down. They will help you find your voice later mm. and your own clarity, your, your own clarity. Because once emotions start hitting and you're going it's, through, you start to lose completely, completely. And, um, you know, there's this, um, great quote. I really loved the TV show, the morning show, and there's this great quote in it. Um, which a, a journalist character says, and I might botch it a little bit, but she says, um, history's all already been written. History's been written. All that's left is to put it to the page. Hmm. And that's it. That's it. Um, and I, I just think like words and bearing testimony and bearing witness for people is half the battle. You know, that's half the battle. Um, you know, you, even in my own case, right? After after my assault, after being told not to speak, after being told, you know, I should have been able to prevent it. And then after coming to terms with and wrestling with the fact that speaking to someone, speaking to some to people about it was actually helpful. Uh, one of the first things I did, you know, about a year later, um, was go put words on my own skin. I went and got a tattoo. And mm. that was really um, a big piece of reclaiming myself, a big piece of it. And, uh, what'd you get? So I'm a big fan of Peter Pan. Um, and there's a quote I really love second start of the right and straight on till morning. And the quote is directions to never, never land. Mm. And to me, it, like it was a reminder that no matter what happens to you, no matter what happens around you, you can you can always find your way back. You can always find your way back to that, you know, sense of self, that sense of inner child that needs to be looked after. Like, no matter what happens, that cannot be taken away from you. And life is hard. Trauma is hard. There is immeasurable loss. Mm -hmm. I've been through a lot, and there are losses I cannot even imagine. Um and I had a really hard time for a while because 
people, you know, kind of always told me, especially when what I was going through became public, you know, but look at how strong you are. This will make you stronger. And I was just like, I, I do not need to be stronger. Thank you. Like, I would rather, <laughs> like, I would much rather be, you know, like a little fluff ball than go through this. And, um, but what it did teach me is that I'm incredibly resilient. And mm. I think that's something that everyone has in common. I don't think that's unique to me. I think every individual is incredibly resilient and, and finding your voice, finding a way to reclaim your history, um, and how to honor it, mm. you know, how to honor it. Um, you know, and wrap your head, like it took me a while, but it, to wrap my head around the fact that yes, I'm a survivor. Yes. I'm the young woman who wrote the memo. Um, Yes, I also, you know, worked for Harvey. Um, yes, my, you know, memo was a cornerstone in the first article about this. Those are pieces of me. Hmm. Those are parts of my definition. They're not like they're not all of me. Yeah. Yeah. So when the New York Times article came out. What shifted in your life? Because before everything you were, I mean, the irony is like, even after the New York times article, I've hung out with you a few times. Yeah. I had no idea yeah. any of this. I mean, <laughs> even, even I should, I should have said this at the top, but we've hung out a few times. Yeah. We hung out at a charity event in Dallas and yeah. <laughs> had a great time with you. And I mean, and, and it's, it's almost like, you know, if I remember correctly, I, it was an eighties gala. What's that? It was an 80s, 80s gala. gala. I was yep. in a Versace suit <laughs> yeah. and we were all having fun. And, and I was, uh, and I just, I didn't know any of this. And I guess that's, that's gotta be an, interesting for you as if somebody has a story about you or, oh, Oh, yeah. It's been a totally like inside outside thing. Right. Because this all started after filing the memo, got had an NDA. So it all started with not being able to speak. Mm. Then because you signed an NDA that you couldn't mm -hmm. speak. Then the article broke. My name was published, but I still couldn't actually speak for myself. Ugh. I still couldn't speak. So suddenly, you know, my words were becoming other people's words. Right. Other people could write about me, but I couldn't say no, like I, I was handcuffed, you know, and um, and yet, you know, paradoxically, I was I, I was still silenced, but completely exposed, completely exposed. I mean, the level of press harassment, um, just the incessant phone calls um you know, as you can imagine, legal, there are a lot of legal situations surrounding all of this, um, was terrifying. I lost my privacy. Um, you know, my finances were decimated. It really, did you go off social media completely? Oh, I'm still not on. So I'm it was almost like on. before that, were you on it? Yeah. You were like talking to friends and family oh, and all totally. of a sudden you just disappeared. Oh, I'm like a Buzzfeed addict because it's my substitute for Instagram. <laughs> like I don't have clickbait, like I don't have something to scroll in the morning. And so it's Buzzfeed and whatever clickbait I can find. Did you, like, <laughs> did you instantaneously just go, I'm, I need to get off everything. And like, were you just paranoid? Was it extraordinarily paranoid? And, you know, and it didn't help that a couple months after I'm reading this article in the guardian that, you know, I'm on the list for Black Cube, the ex-Massad for, you know, the the firm made up of ex-Massad agents hired 
to dig up dirt on people. And like, there I am, terrified, not knowing what's going to happen, needing to expand, hire lawyers, expand my legal team. And, you know, I just remember this really long period of time where, A, it was hard to get out of bed. B, part of what was hard is I didn't know how to help myself. And so, so I spent a lot of time watching reruns of The Good Wife, looking to understand, like, you know, because I had good, like, I had lawyers explain it to me. I also love The Good Wife, but like to actually understand in like a human way, what what is a subpoena? How mm. how does that? Can I be subpoenaed across state lines? Things that you know every young professional asks themselves. <laughs> but um, and I also watch Scandal a lot. Ah. A lot. Like, I really, I really did, like, right when, you know, pretty soon after the article broke, actually, I started watching Scandal and, like, looking at the team that Olivia Pope had put together to understand, like, okay, do I need a tech guy? Hmm. I've only ever heard of publicists, like, you know, helping with a movie release. What is a personal publicist. Like these are just not things I I knew. How do I stay out of headlines? Right. Do I want to be in headlines? Like are you supposed to angle a story that's true or do you just let it be? Or and if I can't speak for myself, what can be said about me? Mm. And if I have been followed, what what do you like what, you what can be misconstrued? Right. And so know? did you feel like your world got a lot smaller in terms of like Completely, yeah, completely, completely. I mean, I retracted completely because I was also going through this period of time where I didn't know who to trust, right? And I, you know, it was so, so overwhelming, so overwhelming. And um, it was, you know, very much that feeling of not being able to see your hand in front of your face in the dark. And Were you getting the most random phone calls from people you knew too? Oh, I mean, yeah, like the first day the article broke, like my phone, I think I got, you know, probably 500 texts. I don't even think I know 500 people. Right. You probably got people that you didn't talk to in forever. And oh, you're yeah. like, why? I was like, all of a sudden you're calling me? I was like, I don't know who this person is or this person. And my phone like froze and crashed, you know? And um, yeah, it was really wild. It was really overwhelming. And, you know, and the other piece of it, though, too, is that. People don't know how to ask about trauma Mm. or, you know, what to say. And I was really fortunate in that, you know, I had a couple people, many of whom I actually didn't know very well, who have since become, you know, some of my very close friends. Um, And they would just send a text once a day saying, checking in. Like those two words can really carry someone far. Mm. Like they can really, like if you know someone's going through something and you have no idea what to say, you don't know if you should ask because they might not want to talk about but, about it, but maybe they do. Checking in is really great. A single emoji heart every morning goes a long way. Mm. Like, and it's, there's such small things, um, but to know that there was a place I could turn, a person I could turn to. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is to trust your instincts. If someone feels safe, lean into it. Mm. If something feels uncomfortable, it's probably because it is uncomfortable. Listen to that too. Have you spoken to the woman who was in the memo was in regards to? Yeah, we've spoken since. We've spoken since. And, you know, I think... Um, 
It's been good. Reconnecting has been healing too. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I'd met Harvey Weinstein a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him at a client's house. He was really friendly to me. And then I met him at an He event. can be lovely. Yeah, really. Like I was like, yeah. oh, this guy's so nice. I, 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 and then I'll, I met him at a, a party and he was just really rude. I remember walking away afterwards. I was like, that guy's really rude. Like, that's like a really rude person. And I didn't, I'm not looking to work in Hollywood. So like, I didn't know a whole lot about him. I know I'm, and then what's interesting is once this all became a crisis, um, I actually got a call a few times to work with him Mm. because- In what capacity? He was seeking treatment. (laughs) Seeking treatment yep. for sex addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, the person had called because they needed someone to kind of oversee um, and advise it. And money did not appear to be an issue. And I actually, from, probably because I'd met him two times and saw the, uh, you know, Jekyll and Hyde of it all. Yeah. Uh, I said, this, this is, I'm not the right guy. This isn't the right fit. Um, and I just, I, it, it's, it's almost like, you know, you choose integrity mm-hmm. and I'm, thank God. I, I mean, I'm just saying, thank God I made that decision. I would have yeah. dragged through all sorts of shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause I didn't realize I got the call about him until That's, I watched the documentary yeah. before. I went, I knew one of the women yep. from mm-hmm. the past. And then, then I suddenly went, oh my God. I got that call. I got that call. Oh, I used to have to sit out in front of his sex therapist's office and like do work. Like we'd come from a meeting. I'd sit there. He'd like go in, be working. In front of the sex therapist. Yeah, like I'd be sitting out there doing work. And I was an executive. So he was going to the sex therapist and you would be sitting there? Yeah. You know, like we would be going from meeting to meeting and I'd be in and out of them and he would have this appointment in the middle of the day and- like, I didn't actually know what it was for a while. And then I kind of, I just like looked up the names on the building. You know, this is, you know, New York City and Googled who was there. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. And, you know, and it was like, I mean, I would literally, like, if this was your office, I would be sitting right on the other side of that door. And, you know, it's like, like, and I was an executive. And and the reality is, too, even if I wasn't an executive, shouldn't have had to sit there. Awkward. Yeah, no kidding. I remember once, like, the paparazzi were following us. This was in 2015 when a really brave woman, Ambra, um, went to, you know, SVU. Yeah, SVU and, um, and the NYPD. And, you know, there was a lot of news surrounding it and the paparazzi were following us and we go into the, you know, the, the building of the, you know, sex addiction therapist. And all I could think to myself was if the paparazzi just Googled like the names on the building register, they would have a really good story, Hmm. you know? And did he ever talk to you about it? Like after therapy, like, hey, good session I had. No, 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 absolutely not. No, I don't think he even knew I knew. And was it weird with him having like, didn't he have a wife? Yeah. I mean, look, I don't think most people assume that their boss is raping someone behind closed doors. I think people are more likely to assume that someone's having affairs and that 
their personal life is not your business. Hmm. And that's where, and that's where it sucks too. Cause you got to keep a lot of secrets. Yeah. And, and secrets and also the sense of decorum, you know, like even if I'm treated unprofessionally, I want to maintain my professionality hmm. that, that that's expected of me. And I expect that of myself in a work environment, you know, and, and, uh, you know, his personal life is not my business because I'm a professional. You're a human, period. Mm. Like, point blank, you're a human. So, you know, decency and kindness, like, lead with that. And, you know, you have, like, lead with that. What is, it, what is it like that you see, like, even producer Patty crying as you talk about it, which clearly this is a universal feeling, especially in entertainment um when i see someone crying i generally start crying too so i'm on the tipping point but also um makes me feel less alone actually makes me feel less alone it's like oh they went through what i went through they understand this is important to both of us it makes me glad like not that you're crying <laughs> but but you know it's um and with your girlfriends now, because I know I know one of your girlfriends is is my literary can agent. I, best human on earth. Yeah. She can is. I just can I take a moment to yeah. brag about Lacey? Lacey Lynch um, is Lacey an Lynch is she's an unbelievable person. Yeah, you unbelievable. Know, Lacey and I met initially through work, and um, we always connected right away. But I did not know her super well, and for whatever reason of the. 500 and some odd texts I got and phone calls I got Lacey's was one of four I respond. And I, this is where I'm like, you know, God, or if you want to call it the universe, or you want to call it Shiva, like whatever it is, have faith that you will be given exactly what you need and who you need to get through something because of all people in the world that Lacey was one of five that I responded to. And she became one of the people every day checking in, calling, don't have to call me back. Just saying hi. I'm here. Mm. I mean, she really got in there with me. And, you know, one of my other very close friends said to me, I remember, she was like, I don't know what to say. And I'm worried I'll say the wrong thing. And I never want to ask you about it because I don't want to upset you by bringing it up. But I also want to know what you're feeling and what you're going through. And that kind of opened up the space where I could be like, there isn't a right thing to say. I'm scared to tell you what I'm feeling because I'm scared of it. And I'm also in like such a place of heightened sensitivity that like you could say something that's perfectly fine and actually like textbook what you should say. And I might snap at you because I feel really trapped right now. Mm. And, and yet it was by continuing to talk about it that I became untrapped and, you know, it's but for friends, you know, I mean, I, I'm about to like Oscar speech, thank people. So I'm going to refrain myself. <laughs> I literally was starting to count in my head. I was like, these are the people who got me through. They're amazing. And the world should know. But, um, but yeah, no, Lacey is something else. She's something. I mean, Lacey was supporting clients and carrying the torch for sexual harassment. I mean, years before I wrote my memo. I mean, 
more far more than four years ago. Yeah, and she's tenacious. She, yeah, she is. <laughs> yes, she is. She's the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was your reaction to like him, you know, being so feeble now and the kind of uh, character that it appeared to be put out there of him being so weak now and. Power is power. Like power is power. You, he still has it. He still has money. He did things to women's lives that have cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars that they do not have in therapy. He has the luxury of being able to afford to go to sex addiction therapy. Yeah. It's, it's and you if know, he's and, actually motivated to shift that. Yeah. Like, like there's a difference between optic of doing the work mm -hmm. and actually doing the work. Like a, people in his position often are looking for the optic. They're not yeah. looking to, actually dig in because they would have dug it in the first place. And meanwhile, there are people you've left in your wake who don't have any other option but then to find a way to do the work because they need to be able to survive, you know, and live with themselves and wake up in the morning. Yeah. Did you, uh, I'm curious when you were working for him, like, or even after, were there times when you would see like a movie that he created and you were just like, this is so hypocritical. Like why on earth you're. Oh yes. Oh yes. Um, I mean, you know, the great irony is I think it was a year prior to me filing the memo or something. He had just released a documentary called the hunting ground, which about was culture. all about campus assault and the way it can be treated as a quote unquote hunting ground. Wow. And there, there is irony to it, right? It's, it's a hard thing to hold that somebody crafted a release strategy for this brilliant documentary that was incredibly important and yet was perpetrating the same thing. And now, well, and I think that's, what's confusing about all of this stuff. You know, people are, let me think about how to say this, like, People are not all one thing, but cruelty, violence, and a lack of integrity can and should outweigh everything else that you are. Say that again? Like, people are not all one thing, right? Um, like, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, someone can, you know, be a really great person in one way and a terrible person in another, mm -hmm. right? Um, I could not be a morning person, but like to get up early, right? We all have these inherent contradictions. And I think, I think there's this propensity to see things as black and white, mm. right? If someone's a devoted family man, they can't be, you know, reckless financially. If someone is mm. a father, they can't also be a rapist, Right. So we have these kind of black and white areas where we try to understand who people are. And no one's that simple. Harvey did invest in some really worthy causes. He did release some really important movies. The irony, I, irony is too soft of a word right. <laughs> for half of it, you know? Um, and yet I also think that even with the sort of both end where people can be both things and something else, even within the both end of somebody, um, when there is a 
piece of you that takes the form of, of cruelty and violence and abuse and wielding your power and rendering other people powerless, um, that should outweigh every other part that you are. Mm. And, you know, to your question though about, um, you know, what I will confidently call a charade in terms of the walker with the tennis balls, because, you know, multimillionaire needs tennis balls to be relatable. Let's be honest. Hmm. Um, and uh, what I, but what, what, I what, what were the tennis balls? Oh, like you know how you have them on the little bottoms of the of walkers to like oh, yeah, keep the it from scraping. Balls on the bottoms? Yeah, and it's like you know there was some article I read at some point that was like he can afford gliders. I didn't know what the word glider was until that right. moment, but I was like, oh, <laughs> that's interesting. And it's it's you know it's frankly it's an insult to people who do need to use tennis balls on their walkers. Like, how dare you? Um, and secondly, um, the funny thing is, though, like I read that one article about and learned what gliders were. And and then my focus really shifted. Like, my focus really hasn't been, you know, throughout the trial on how Harvey presented itself himself. It's And certainly there are things his lawyer, Donna Rotuno, said that make my blood boil. But my focus wasn't even wholly on that. If we, you know, want to talk about how weak he looked, my focus was on the strength of these women. Mm. And did you, once the verdict was read, did you start to feel different? Yeah, yeah, actually. Um, you know, this is the first time I'm speaking publicly about, or in any, you know, in any sort of public capacity about my own assault and. I think something in the verdict freed me a little bit from everything that happened. I feel safer. Mm. I feel safer. And in that sense of safety, I feel more comfortable um, acknowledging my own healing and what that entailed and what it took to get there. Um, so yeah, did I feel different? Absolutely. Do you feel more... Um a lot less paranoid. Mm, yeah, within reason, within reason. I think it's less so paranoid, but I, I got to a point during the trial where it was, you know, where you just kind of got to this point and it was like, I can't predict the verdict. I can't control the verdict. I have to figure out a way to feel safe again. Did you go to the I didn't. I didn't. Um, but, but I have to figure out a way to feel safe again. Mm. I, I can't live my life looking over my shoulder. It's the same thing with dating after assault. I can't spend my life. Um, I don't want to spend my life without a partner. And I can't um, live in fear. I can't. If I, if I live in fear, I end up giving up so much of myself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I got it. <laughs> Sorry. And so when very verbose. <laughs> so when you um um uh, uh were going through this and spending money on attorneys, spending money on therapy. Therapy. Um still go twice a week. I think it's wonderful. I recommend it to everybody. Like if you can't afford it, there's some great things online. What journaling, you, journaling is a close second, you know. And what what has therapy done for you? It's given me a place to take the things I'm scared to acknowledge, mm. to digest them, process them, um, and figure out how to like weave them into who I am. 
And so do you feel, so throughout this whole process, there's different phases of. Yeah, completely, completely. Um, you know, and I think at the beginning, a lot of it was just, um, a lot of therapy was just getting through the barrage of everything flying at my face with the legal bills, with the mm. press, with the publicity, all of that stuff. And, and I think like one of the beauties of therapy is that it gave me a place to put everything. So if, you know, if I received a, received a, you know, subpoena and, saw my name in four articles and read on the same day that, you know, is in the ex Mossad file. I, and I knew I was going to therapy tomorrow or three days from now. It helped me again, it comes back to that word safe and voice. It helped me feel safe because I had a place that I could go to figure out how to speak about the things I was going through. Mm. Has your writing changed since all of this has happened? Yeah, for sure. For sure. What I'm learning is that if I'm angry, I'm a very strong writer. Like I get very concise. If I'm trying to say something, I go on and on and on and it's terrible. Um, I write a lot of poems. Uh, yeah, I write a lot of poetry. That helps me too. Like poetry I love because, um, you know, you have things that happen around you that that you can't really fully make sense of. Mm. Even the past two years, I can't wrap my head around you know, everything that's happened. And so these, you experience these things as feelings first, you know, like I experience as feeling first and then my brain kicks in to try and make sense of all of it. And I like poems because they're words that can just exist in feeling, mm. you know, they don't have to be cogent. There doesn't have right. to be a narrative. It can just be the fact of a moment. Have you wrote any poems that, that you have that are in regards to everything yeah, that's you going on. You want to hear one? Can I hear one? Really? It's in your phone? Yeah, yeah I want to hear so it. I love poems. I write really? poems too. Excellent. We're going to have a poem party. Um, <laughs> honestly, like, sorry to anyone who ends up listening. I could easily read poems to you for an hour, so be careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, let me see if I have it here on my phone. Um, um, yeah, so I wrote this. I was on a plane. I basically... One thing I did a lot when I, um, you know, was first going through this is I, I live in L.A. and I left L.A. every weekend I could, whether it was just getting in the car and going and camping out at a friend's, just somewhere that felt different to remind myself that the world, like my world was going to be bigger and had more things in it than what I was immediately going through. And so I was, um, I, you know, driven up to San Francisco to stay with, you know, my best friend and, um, the uh, the day I was flying back to LA, the attorney general's office in New York filed a civil suit in the New York Supreme Court. So this was the poem I wrote. It's called From a Plane on Harvey. The dotted lights like stars below sing sharply in their wink, while Pleiades outside my window sits stately fixed in navy sky and crowns the last two days and nights for all sisters, not just several. For suit was filed against devil's tongue, and the sullied lifted for a moment, high as royal peppered stars. We are a constellation that needs no name, only the velvet stretch of justice, the soft bow of integrity kneeling dutifully, 
at horizon sprawl. A thousand pinpricked voices rendered truer than man's own brash electric light. And finally, the ancient sky safe harbor once again, as witness born moves truth abused to truth abided, moves darkest night to question day to righteous night. It's mm, beautiful. Thanks. <laughs> um, but that's how I feel about all this. You know, it's it's hard. Trauma's hard. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but it, there's a lot of sh- it's a lot of shit. It's fucking. It's hard. a lot of shit. A lot of fucked yeah. up stuff happens. I'm sure there will be more stuff like you know, hopefully not exactly like this, but more shit that happens in my life. Um, well, look, I, I know I. But I, like, I, I know because uh, I I know there were stories where you know you're again hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Yeah true like yes from, yeah. yeah and so um uh you know i know that uh i turned the other way when harvey was asking mm-hmm. you know um but indefinitely if you ever need life coach group therapy private Thank therapy you. like comps at you know where i have cast centers anytime bless you thank you it's everything from thank you life to trauma you can thank even take you. care thank of it you, you got I everything love it. i love it's it it's a menu I love it. you were answering my prayers because i was just saying the other day to patty um that therapy should be more affordable so <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you i really appreciate we all that. need it i mean that's, yeah that's the thing about healing and empowering ourselves and um you know i've I've found that, you know, look, I'm, I'm in recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've 18 years sober uh, in May mm-hmm. and have gone through a lot of trauma yeah. myself. And um, not being able to have a quick resource often can get yeah. in the way of us, like, choosing something. Yeah, yeah. And when we're struggling financially, yeah, um, it really it makes it hard. like when you yeah. we start to look at our priority list of like okay i need to pay my rent i need food mm-hmm. i need to socialize i need to just get clothes and whatever yeah. Yeah. and then usually what happens in terms of like uh mental health we we start going to it only when it's a crisis it, when you're right and so yeah. um it's and trust me, I'm not saying stop going to your therapist, no. stay going to your therapist. I'm just saying anytime because <laughs> we have you. like life coaches develop, like we got it all. And Thank this is, you. You Thank would you. fit in nicely to <laughs> the crowd, our, our crowd, right? And that 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 poem like sparked that in me. Oh. You know the the constellation of safety and yeah and well, that's it, isn't it? It's like fucked up stuff happens. But that that constellation does exist. Yeah, you know it does it exist. Does. It does exist, and like you have to just keep putting one foot in front of the other until like you start to see the stars. Well, I'm in the you stars know. with you. <laughs> and Stop. <laughs> no, and I really, I, I mean yeah. that, and I really yeah. appreciate you um, coming on the podcast and, and being open about everything that's happened. Thank you. Is is there anything else you you would like to say while you have that I promise like when you go through something hard, like you you're not going to be who you, you know, to anyone listening, you won't be who you were before and you will mourn that person, but 
I also, having been through what I've gone through, can sit here and say wholeheartedly, you will be okay again. You will feel whole again. And so when you question that, you know, hang on because you'll get there. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Lauren O'Connor. And I speak about a very important issue. And I'm so grateful that we were able to discuss it today. Uh, We're going to have more discussions like this in the next few weeks. So click to subscribe, download, contact me on social media, and let me know what you thought of today's show. And let's stay in touch and keep making this world a better place.